You're listening to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu, and we're back in the home studio of our producer, Sonia Sugrabova. In the last two episodes of the Global Futures Podcast, we looked at how the US and Latin American countries are dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. Today, we turn our attention to China. Three months after the outbreak, companies across China are slowly reopening their doors for business. On March 19, Beijing announced that there were no new local infections. In fact, the country where the COVID-19 breakout originated is now supporting other countries to fight the pandemic with material and medical staff. Joining us today to discuss these developments is Kun Tang, who is a fellow with the Global Governance Futures 2027 program. He is an assistant professor at Tsinghua University's Public Health Research Center. He also serves as the Global Health Advisor of the Chinese delegation to the World Health Assembly. Here he is to discuss China's response to COVID-19 and its potentially lasting impact on the lives of Chinese citizens. In June 2017, you co-authored a Global Governance Futures report on risk factors for future pandemics. And in that report, you and your working group, which includes Mara Pillinger, who we recently interviewed for this podcast, you developed two scenarios on possible future uh, pandemics. And in the first scenario, it takes place in a world of increasing geopolitical fragmentation and isolationism. As medical advancements in wealthy countries make continuous improvements in health and virtually eradicate many diseases, skepticism rises over the necessity of critical medical interventions. You go on to write that fueled by medical-induced panic, vaccine, vaccine skepticism, across the developed world. It's taking root in the minds of a generation that has never seen a case of measles or polio. When diphtheria outbreak occurs, which is something you guys uh, bring up in this uh, scenario, poor geopolitical coordination and a weak response from leading global health institution costs lives, money, and time. You go on to write that tragically vaccination could have prevented the pandemic in the first place. In the second scenario, you expose the challenges that would persist even in the context of a relatively well-functioning global order and response in a multipolar world. Acting on the lessons learned from previous outbreaks, domestic and global actors are well prepared to deal with the outbreak of Nipah virus in India. However, they fail to recognize the impact of downstream freakonomic effects, which is the economic consequences re- resulting from hysteria outbreaks and propelled by misinformation. And this leads to irrational decision making on part of both individuals and states. And the way you guys thought about it was to create these two scenarios as a stress test for the global health governance um, mechanism. Now, Now, I bring this up because I wonder, do you see any similarities in these scenarios to what we're facing now with the coronavirus pandemic in 2020? Well, actually, yes. A lot of what we forecasted in our during our fellowship and during uh, when we read that report has actually happened, although it's not exactly the same as we have we projected in any of the scenarios. But there are a lot of things that did happen and this is happening in the current outbreak. Can you give um, us an example? For, yeah, well, for example, um, the fragmentation isolationism, this is a very good case in point. You know, um, the current world, although we are interconnected, but, you know, during the outbreak, many countries declare isolation right away, like in China, like uh, right into February, early February, well, late January, early February, we start to lock down the entire city of Wuhan and the entire province. And many other cities were locked down one by one. And that is isolationism, I mean, within the country. But China at that time did not did not want the international community to completely lock down China, to ban the travel to and from China. 
so we're we're strongly against that. But you know, um, like weeks after the world knows about this outbreak in China, I mean, I think North Korea was the first one to to uh, completely shut down the borders with China to isolate itself. And then uh, many countries, and I think uh, in mid-February, almost all the countries, almost 180-some countries have already had these travel restrictions, not entirely banned by travel restrictions against the Chinese travelers. And uh, many other things happen. For example, the media introduced panic, as you can tell and nowadays, especially social media. That is, uh, you know, in the, in the world of disease uh, pandemic preparedness, this is both a blessing and a curse. For blessing, you know, it's fast, it reach out to people, so people get the first-hand information right away. But the curse is, you know, there are a lot of misinformation, fake news, and spread like viral to the population that create a huge amount of panic. So a, a large group of uh, behavioral scientists and social scientists are actually working on it at the moment to try to tackle the problem of social media or media-induced panic. We didn't really see a vaccine skepticism at the moment because there is virtually no vaccine, but there are a lot of debate over the British approach. As you probably know, they claim the herd immunity, right? So people are skepticism, just skeptical about that approach, whether it works. So I want, not. I want to pick you up on, on, on something very interesting you said, which also Mara mentioned. Mara had recently written this uh, article where she says, you know, travel travel bans don't work. And you mentioned that the Chinese government also did not want to have an international travel ban from China. That's interesting that China is also, or the Chinese government was thinking that way. What was the rationale behind that? Why, why was the Chinese government saying, you know, don't throw a travel ban at us? Well, uh, I think for the government perspective, most likely to be the considerations of the economics. You know, travel ban is not just to ban people. It's not, it's, you know, it, it come across, it come along with all the products and goods China is trying to export to, other, uh, to the other part of the world. So if you ban on travel, most of the country will not, will not post strong embargo on Chinese products, but you know, those products come with people. So, um, you know, whenever there is a travel ban, uh, it will cost hugely to the Chinese economy. And especially because of China, you know, which is an export-led uh, economy. If there is gonna, if there is any travel ban on Chinese uh, travelers and products and goods, you know, be it uh, by air or by sea or by by land, that could have a strong economic consequences to our economy. But that's from the government perspective, you know, from scientific perspective, you know, I. Early in February, I attended the WHO COVID-19 research roadmap meeting in Geneva. So that was a uh, meeting with all the global experts. And there was already very clear modeling studies on travel ban. And the conclusion was, you know, unless you ban 95% of global travelers, the ban wouldn't work. So that is a scientific evidence that the travel ban is not going to help that, because, that, you know... That is uh, a massive number, though, 95% of exactly, global travelers. Exactly, exactly. How, how exactly. is anyone going to be able to do that? So that's, that's, that's exactly the case, right? No country can completely ban anyone, you know, from traveling around the world. So let's say if ever there is a case somewhere in the world, as long as you cannot 100% ban or 95% ban the travelers, this one is going to be able to travel somewhere and that will cause another 
not uh, epidemic, at least locally. So, yeah, so it's not going to work. That is the scientific evidence. So that is why I don't think travel ban is a good strategy or policy that should be implemented. I, I see. So basically you're saying that unless you can pretty much watertight seal off. Yeah, exactly. So as long as people are still getting in and out, even if it's a trickle, there will be, you know, uh, outbreak anyways. So... Okay. Yeah. I see. Let, let me go back to the report um, because one thing that uh, in your in your scenarios that I read um, and and really kind of reminded me again of, of what we're living through now is that you highlight this neglect until crisis approach, which comes back uh, over and over again in your scenarios, and we're seeing this in reality. Uh, and just to remind our listeners that the report was published around three years ago, and we're kind of facing this now. Can you tell us a little bit more about what, what you and the working group meant by the neglect until crisis approach? Well, uh, it's common. No, no, this is very common. You know, after people, I mean, right after like major crises, be it natural disasters or disease outbreaks in the world, uh, there are a lot of attention, uh, global attention, well, in terms of investment, in terms of media, in terms of the resources allocated, and uh, also the policy attention, like from the policymakers. I mean, they know it's a big issue and it will cause huge problems. So that's why they uh, tend to invest a lot uh, right after this crisis. But, you know, when time, after time goes on for like, two years, three years, and people tend to forget. I mean, that's, that's very sad, but that's the reality. Think about the case in China, you know, right after the SARS in 2003, the government literally invested a huge amount of money to, to uh, develop a very well-established CDC system, you know, from the central level down to the village level. So we have a, like, a world-class reporting system in place like electronic, a digitalized uh, reporting system. So that was like three, four years right after the SARS outbreak. But gradually, you know, after that, and the government funding began to decline and the investment in the disease control efforts has diminished and then until the new outbreak. Now it costs a whole attention from not only China, but the, the, the world. So this is... This is the case, and uh, not only in China, if you look at the, the U.S. CDC at the moment, is exactly the same after the Trump, Trump administration. The investment, the government spending on disease control, the CDC system in the U.S. is also declining. It's happening everywhere. It's a common phenomenon, and you know, as a public health professional, we felt really sorry for that. But this is what's going on in the world. All right, I'll come back to the, the topic of how China and the Chinese government handled the epidemic a little bit later. But I want to go back to what you just said on the investment in the CDC and the health system. So I'm sitting here and I'm thinking that when we look back at this time that we are in now, we won't just be, I hope that we won't just be talking about how deadly COVID-19 was, but also how even in developed countries with advanced medical systems, we see how overwhelmed this pandemic has made them. And not to mention countries with poor infrastructure and medical services. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's why, you know, this um, new disease, this is first, this is a new disease. No one knows about it. And probably that is why uh, even for the countries with more advanced medical technologies cannot even handle it properly. If you look at the world, is the even the like leading leading countries in the, in the world, like the US, UK, Europe, I mean, they are still trying to 
find the best strategy themselves. So that that is that means they don't even know what is the best way to handle this case. As you can tell in Italy, which have a actually a very good health system. You know, if you look at the ranking in the WHO, the Italian health system ranks pretty high in on the list. So um, that is to say, you know, it's a common hazard to all human beings, not just for one country. But of course, the poorer countries are facing more disease burden or more difficulties when uh, dealing with this new outbreak. You know, I was just back from Africa. I was in one of the uh, ministerial meetings uh, against COVID-19 in DRC. And in that meeting, you know, those, uh, they have a very good plan, uh, which is a good part. But right after the, the, uh, they gave us the plan. The second, the second uh, sentence they, they talked about was literally, we don't have money, we don't have capacity, we don't have human resources, we don't have the equipment to deal with it. So we need donor countries to help us. So that is a situation in a lot of poor countries who doesn't really have any extra resources uh, to deal with this new outbreak, especially you know, if you look at the DRC, they now have Ebola. They have measles, new measles outbreak. They have polio, and they have they have uh, what else? Uh, malaria. So you know, with all this infectious disease on uh, outbreak in the country, you know, if there is a, an extra layer of of burden to them, their health system, their CDC will just uh, no, they don't even have a CDC, but their uh, infectious disease control department will just break right away. I want to come back to Italy. You mentioned that it has one of the highest rankings. Why is the country so hard hit? Well, honestly, I don't know much about Italy. Uh, uh, I assume this is what I read from the news. Perhaps one of the reasons is uh, they don't have a strong capacity in mobilizing communities and to try to convince people to stay at home. Uh, not like the strong government in China. That the government, after the uh, government announced this policy, the entire country will take actions right away. But it could be difficult in a lot of the Western countries, um, especially probably in in Italy, when people are more liberal. And another thing is their their aging society. They are uh, among the highest country among the highest countries with a uh, a large of aging populations. And as as you can see from the researchers, the aging groups are the elderly groups are at highest risk for uh, mortality of the COVID nineteen, and um, so that perhaps is another is another reason, but that couldn't really explain the whole situation because if you compare that with Japan, Japan is also a aging society and probably more aging than Italy. But the new infections and case fatality is a lot less. So, so the uh, demographics alone cannot explain, uh, and the health system alone cannot dis- uh, explain neither. So, I, I guess I, mean, I don't know the fundamental reason. There's got to be a lot of researchers after this outbreak to um, summarize the experience learned from Italy. But I guess it's the multifactorial 
like uh, causes for the situations now. Yeah, I'm sure there will be a lot of people looking back at this and, and, and trying to dig deeper into making these comparisons and, and have a wealth of studies. Let's stick to this point a little bit longer. As a health professional from China, can you help our listeners understand how crisis management of COVID-19 in China differs from the one we're seeing now in the US and the European Union? I think the fundamental idea or the fundamental philosophy is different. Uh, in China, our approach is quarantine and complete lockdown. I mean, if uh, from professional terms, uh, we want to reduce the R naught to almost zero. What do you mean so by that R naught? R naught is the reproduction number, which means one one infected person can infect how many additional persons. So if R naught is more than one, that means the infection is spreading. And if we are controlling it below one, that means one person can only infect less than one person. So that means the overall, uh, the overall outbreak is shrinking and eventually is under control. So that is the R0. For China, we try to reduce the R0 to approach zero. So no one got infected. I mean, that is through a very strict lockdown uh, and uh, very strict control of uh, mobility of people uh, approach. But in Europe, at least from what I read from the literature, I mean, many, almost all the European countries, except for Italy, the Italy is now trying to uh, do quarantine because of the huge burden. But other than Italy, all other countries are not trying to reduce it to, to almost zero. They as you can always hear, they always want to flatten the curve, flatten the curve. I was just thinking means, about that. Yeah, flattening the curve. Yeah, yeah, flattening the curve. So that means you you allow the infection to go on, but not to like to burst into like huge outbreak that will pose huge damage to the health system. So I'm hearing what I hear from you is that the form of government that a country has also determines how quickly and rapidly and effectively it can address a pandemic or an epidemic? Well, I think that's part of the story. I mean, of course, I think China, you know, in, in case of China, the government is very strong. It's very, very strong in uh, pushing its policies to implementation. So uh, whenever there is a government policy to, you know, quarantine almost everyone and the, the people will follow, the all levels of government will follow. That is because of this uh, very strong government structures. But it's not the case in a lot of Western countries, especially, for example, like in the States, you have the state government, federal government, and you also have the state government. They do not necessarily agree with each other. That is not the case. That will never happen in China. So that is one part of the story. But the other part, you have to understand the severity and the, and the transmissibility of the virus. I think, you know, it's just because the virus is, is not that severe, to be honest. If this is a deadly virus, that cause a huge amount of fatality rate, uh, case fatality ratio, then I think all governments will do exactly the same thing to quarantine people. There's no other way out. So if this virus is not as deadly as you think it is, and by, by all accounts, you know, we still see, I think the, the fatality ratio is hovering around 2% or so. Why then do we have such a sensationalization of this uh, current pandemic? And, and I mean, if you see people are going out and, and you know, panic shopping and social distancing and all these measures, it, it seems like this is really something we have never seen before. Just explain to us why why are governments all across the world now 
treating it so with, with such alert? Well, I wouldn't think it's it's necessarily a government response. I think it's the people who actually prompted the actions of the government. Especially, I mean, is is the case in China, and also I think is the case in the UK and、uh, many other countries. Uh, the reason saying that is, you know,、uh, there was at the very beginning of the outbreak in China. There,、uh, I mean, there, I mean, government is not taking actions, as everyone knows, until you know when there was a significant amount of、uh, infections in、uh, Wuhan city, and finally by January twenties, the government reckoned that this is a huge. Uh, outbreak and、uh, and enlisted all these resources and、uh, people to、uh, fight against the, the outbreak. So this is and the reason for that was you know even before the government taking action, there are a lot of debates and discussion, not debates but actually discussions within social media to spread. At that time, was still what they call rumor, but was later everyone knows is actually the reality that there are already this new virus and cause severe、uh, situation of people of the patients,、uh, critical conditions.、Um, so、uh, I think is because of this, the discussion online has been heated, and then the government was prompted to take actions afterwards. And、uh, because they cannot really、um, hide it anymore, they cannot really pretend not to hear about it, right?、Uh, and it's the same. It's the same in the U.S. I think you know a lot of debates at the moment over the government in、uh, in functioning and the、uh, lack of responses, exactly, exactly. So the government have to respond to people's need because you know, especially in the Western countries, they are buying vote from the voters, so they have to respond to people's、uh, request. And also, but I think you know, for for Europe, I mean, at least from the UK and the Germany, I think、uh, I'm quite surprised to see the response. In, in fact, what sense? What do you、um, mean? I mean, I think they they solve this issue in a calm. And、uh, logic way, and they follow the science. I think that is what actually is needed for the government. Now, if you look at the the British approach after the prime minister announced the the strategies for the for the British government to control the disease, they literally tell everyone that there are loved ones who will be die, who will die because of the disease. That is the,、uh, the speech given by the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. That's true. And also, they they talk about having this treating this disease as the、uh, as a case we we do in flu, which means to allow the infections to happen within the population, the but herd, not strictly herd, herd immunity. Yeah, the herd immunity. I mean, well, I think the herd immunity is a misread of what they actually meant. But the strategy they adopted is the same in the UK, the Netherlands, the Germany,、uh, Germany. As well is to allow the infection to happen、uh, across the populations, so that、uh, but in a controlled manner,、uh, in which they they do social distancing, they do some kind of uh, uh, protection among the elderly, so that their health system will not be overwhelmed to allow this to happen, and and just to buy time, so to flatten the curve, which means you buy more time for research and development of vaccines. 
and drugs. And what, and what do what do you think? I mean, you are a health professional. Would you rather say you know go with the reducing the R naught down close to zero approach is is better, or this kind of flattening the curve, taking the long approach, uh, herd immunity way of doing things is better? What would you what would you recommend? So personally, I prefer this flatten the curve approach, which means you cannot, I mean, logically speaking, you cannot, I mean, given the, the transmissibility of this virus, it's literally not possible to reduce it to, to reduce the R0 to zero. So if ever there's one case left, the case will infect another people and they will cause another like endemic at the beginning and then pandemic. So it's not sensible to uh, complete can do to do the quarantine completely unless all the countries do the same thing. For example, if all the countries choose the same approach as China, like to complete lockdown the country and reduce R naught to zero, then we can eliminate the virus. Somehow, I don't see that across happening. all the countries. Yes. So if that is not going to happen, then if ever one country do not follow that, then it will ruin the entire picture. And all other countries will have to, even though they eliminate the virus from their land, they will still have to be prepared for the next wave. And that is exactly what China is facing at the moment. You know, China has uh, China has reduced our infections to a very low level of like two digits, you know, every day. But now the biggest fear was the imported case. You know, at the very beginning, we export COVID-19 cases, but now we're fear, fearing of in, uh, import Exactly. Of the cases. Especially, so you mean is, the citizens coming home? The, the ones that's that right, the citizens coming home. So um, so that is to say, you know, even if that we see uh, a effective result of the Chinese approach, then we'll still have to face the follow-up problems that it will bring about. Well, talking about that, um, you know that there's been a lot written about how the Chinese government uh, is trying to restore its economy and its reputation that was damaged by the way it had first handled the outbreak of the coronavirus, as you mentioned. And then critics uh, of the Chinese Communist Party say that uh, this cover-up of the initial outbreak uh, led to an epidemic and now what is a pandemic. And to make up for this, if you will, uh, the Chinese government is now donating face masks and ventilators and sending intensive care doctors to countries in Europe, for example, Italy, as well as to, to African states uh, to reinforce the overwhelmed hospitals uh, that, that are tremendously in distress and to enhance the crisis response. They're also saying, you know, some critics say that China is trying to turn this health crisis into a geopolitical opportunity and that it's using, you know, launching this soft power campaign to fill up a vacuum that is, you know, left behind by the United States. How do you interpret this situation and do do you think that the CCP, the Chinese government, is trying to make up for this initial fumble because of the whole cover-up of the outbreak? Not necessarily. I mean, you know, from our public health professionals' perspective, you know, we tend to think of the world less complex. So I, I do think there are some genuine feelings from the Chinese people, not necessarily the government or the CCP. The Chinese people to help others. I mean, during the outbreak, we received a huge amount of help from other countries. We received donations from the US, from the UK, from Germany, and from almost all the countries, you know, who we don't consider as friendly you know, before. And also Japan, you know, surprisingly, Japan did a very, very good, I wouldn't say it's a public uh, promotion or public uh, or the PR uh, campaign, 
But I, I do feel that the Japanese government helped China a lot during this outbreak. They send us all these PPE equipments and also masks. And you know, the on the boxes, I don't know if you come across the news, on the boxes of these uh, equipments, they put the Chinese, the old Chinese poem. Uh, and that An old means Chinese we poem. share the same, yeah, an old Chinese poem. Uh, like something like we share the same sky, although we have different mountains and rivers, but we share the same sky and same moon. So, so you know, that's, oh, that's very quite touching. lovely. Yeah, that's very lovely. Yeah. yeah, that's very lovely. So yeah, China, you know, you know, in our time three years ago, when we visited Tokyo, I mean, there's huge tension between China and Japan. But when this outbreak happens, you know, the help from people is really touching. I wouldn't necessarily say say is the public promotion campaign or public relation campaign or something. But I think uh, out of that, I see genuine feelings between people. So that is that is a good part. But in terms of the, uh, the, the help from China or the assistance from China, I think one of the major reasons, again, from the public health perspective is we have dealt with this, you know, one month before other countries in the world. So we, we have health professional in the front line who have the like the first hand experience of dealing with the virus, dealing with infection, uh, dealing with the patients. So I think it's very important at, at this point of time to forget about all this hatred, all this disagreement between countries, all this ideological like differences between countries, but focus on humanity, human focus on human beings. Uh, that's the only way that we can fight this battle against the infection because this infection is not a China infection, it's like a global infection, it affects everyone. So that's my taking of this, right? Let me switch gears, uh, Tang, and I want to ask you a little bit about something that uh, came across my desk, which is the issue of surveillance. And I recently read a piece which says, you know, European countries should, uh, European citizens should be prepared for the whole issue of surveillance. It's going to become more intense because of COVID-19. As you can imagine, a lot of people are staying home uh, across Europe, uh, doing home office. People are taking to the online world much more. And a recent article by The Bild, which is a, a tabloid newspaper here in Germany, The Bild reported that there's a roughly 40% decrease in people's movements uh, in Germany. And this is based on cell phone data. Now, if you look at that, and then you look at a country like China, where electronic surveillance mechanisms have were already strong before the current pandemic, you see that it's now you know taken to a even more uh, a stronger uh, yet another level, including you know citizens being tracked through smartphone payment apps, uh, face recognition cameras being equipped for recognizing people with uh, even if they have masks on. Now, do you think these measures in China will stay in place even after the pandemic is over or when it's no longer such a serious threat? So I guess that is that is a question of how we look at the new technologies. Uh, again, I mean, I think it's both a curse and blessing. For blessing, I mean, you know, we have these new technologies to track the mobility of people and to be able to track the mobility of people is crucial for epidemi for epidemiologists for the pandemic control because you do want to know where the people goes and then take uh, protective or, or preventive measures to their destinations. So that is needed, you know, from the scientific point of view. I mean, if you look at the current studies, uh, just a couple of, a couple of, uh, I mean, just less, I think one or two years ago, there was a study from Harvard 
and trying to track the uh, mobility of people in one of the African countries, I think. And they, by tracking their mobility, they successfully predicted the outbreak of malaria. So you can see the beauty of new technology. And also because of this, in China, this digital technology is extremely advanced, that they link everyone. They link your payment, your, your movement, and even your, your personal identity number you know, to the same system, the same platform, as we call it, WeChat. So it's uh, very easy to track people. So that is uh, uh, the good part, you know, is, is helpful for disease control. But you know, your question is afterwards. <laughs> afterwards i think we i mean one thing that we talk in china is you know everyone is not naked so everyone is under surveillance so with or without the virus there will be surveillance on the citizens anyways um, so i wouldn't be surprised be surprised if the surveillance continued on after this outbreak a related question since uh, you know we have you here you're a health expert when you discuss issues of um, you know pandemics and, and health outbreaks with fellow colleagues uh, around the world, um, fellow health experts, does the issue between protecting people uh, and their health versus protecting their privacy uh, because of surveillance, is this a discussion that comes up um, when you guys are, when you and your colleagues are discussing different approaches and advices that you would give government? That's a fairly interesting question. I think it differs. I mean, I wouldn't say necessarily it differs because of the ideology or the or the or the political system of a country it really differs by culture if you look at if you compare the europe or in most part of the world africa be it europe africa or america or south america uh, to east asia you can see a quite different cultural component in this in this situation like you know in east asia people tend to i mean follow the rules, not not necessarily follow the rules, follow what the government asks them to do. I mean, they have, I mean, especially the Japanese, they have very good self-discipline and they follow what they are instructed to do. So that is not because of their political system, that really is because of the culture. The same with Korea and, uh, and probably China. I mean, people are more obedient, if you put it that way. But if you look at the Europe, the case in Italy, you still see the video clips that you know the some of the city mayors were so mad at people. Like still after this uh, order of quarantine, there are still people like walking on the street having this gathering. So um, I guess it's just people have different ideas about their their life. Um, so they do not uh, comply in many parts of the world. Okay, so, so that's the difference. It's it's, it's mm -hmm. more it's more the culture than the ideology. Let let's stick to. I think so. Yeah. Let, let's stick to people, and I'll ask you this one final question because we are coming mm -hmm. to the end of our time. The coronavirus pandemic has turned the spotlight to you know on people across the world, and we've seen you know YouTube riddled with videos uh, of solidarity movements. You know, people across the world coming to their balconies, uh, singing, banging pots and pans and clapping in show of support for medical staff who, you know, chapeau to them, they're risking their health and, and their lives uh, in times of this pandemic. So we really want to salute all of them across the world. What was the situation like in China? Were people doing something similar? <laughs> well, I, I was... I mean, you, you're based in Toronto, we know. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was not in China, but I, I was uh, constantly uh, watching the social media and see the situation in China. Yes, well, there are cases. You you see cases where you know in the same community, 
like people, although people cannot step out of their house, they sing all together, you know, in those, those residential compounds. And uh, there are some like internet, like these, you know, people use a lot of this uh, a WhatsApp kind of uh, chatting groups online and to uh, try to cheer up each other. I mean, this is, I think in, in time, in difficult times like this, people do need to have some 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 way to like help each other like uh support each other i mean otherwise it would be very very difficult especially you know you're isolated at home uh and no one to talk about there's no social life and there's no uh like uh, connection with with anyone else so this is yeah this is much needed i think uh people are quite creative you know in terms of celebrating and in terms of cheering up each other and the right so, uh, yeah, so I guess internet is, is a good thing in that sense. And are you doing anything where you are to, to keep the spirits up? Well, I would just uh, repost, you know, those funny stories, those short video clips to my friends. So you're not, you're not making any dance videos of your own? <laughs> Perhaps after this podcast. Unfortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for this uh, excellent uh, interaction and this opportunity to speak with you. And uh, we hope to have you back with us again. Thank you so much. Great, great. Thank you very much for the interview. I really enjoyed This episode of the Global Futures podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by Sonia Sugrobova with support from Hannah-Sophie Bollmann from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest today was Kun Tang. If you like what you heard, then visit www.ggfutures.net forward slash analysis, and you'll find more of our podcasts, scenario reports, opinion pieces, and online interviews. Until next time, goodbye.